I'd like you to pray for two things. One for yourself, just that you'd hear from God's word and that you would have a heart to hear it. But also, we just looked at those pictures of all these kids that were here in these very pews this weekend, and they're right now pondering what they're going to do with Romans 8. And I ask you to pray for them and for their youth leaders as the work of proclamation of the gospel has gone forward, but the work of the gospel in their lives needs to continually be worked out. So pray for yourself that you'd hear God's word and for each of those students and their leaders as well. Let me lead in prayer here. God in heaven, we thank you that you have loved us with such a great love and you've given us your word so that we may know your love and how to live in light of your love. I pray for uh, some, these some 400 students that were here this weekend uh, as they're pondering Romans 8 and what it means to be unconquerable in Christ, uh, that you would um, help them just to understand by faith who you are, what you've done for them, and to live a life that will be honoring and glorifying you in every single thing they do. And for me and for Parkside this morning, as we look at the book of Galatians chapter 5, God, I pray you would help us to have eyes to see your truth and ears to hear it and humble hearts to receive it. May you convict us, Holy Spirit, and give us the grace to respond in repentance and faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Big events demand big celebrations. And in today's world, the market for extravagant celebrations, extravagant baked goods, has just absolutely exploded, especially for extravagant cakes. I, I heard about a cake recently in the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, that was maybe the most extravagant cake of all time. You see a picture of it here. Let me tell you a bit about this cake. It is about six feet long. It weighs about 1,000 pounds. And the design is so intricate that it took over 1,100 man hours to make this thing. Retail value of this cake, and I checked numerous sources to confirm this because I thought you might not believe me. Please don't Google it until after the service. $75 million. Now, of course, you're all looking back at the screen saying, how in the world do you get $75 million into a cake? It's like this. You put 4,000 diamonds in the decor. You put 400 that are at one carat, 150 at three carats, 15 at five carats, the two large are a 5.2 carat pink diamond and a 6.4 carat yellow diamond. It's one way of saying this is a rich cake. But it's not just an expensive cake. It's rich in its flavor, too. The, uh, the first row of seating along the fashion runway you see there is made of Madagascan vanilla bean and mascarpone cream and strawberry conserve. The runway is made of triple Belgium chocolate with a special chocolate ganache and another chocolate truffle cream drizzled along the sides. It really is a rich cake. This sounds delicious. But you can imagine the conundrum for the people that came to the party to eat this cake when they had to decide, can I actually eat a $75 million cake? Doesn't that feel wrong to eat $75 million? But then on the other hand, you try and preserve it and freeze it and stick it off somewhere knowing eventually it's going to rot. You're sort of stuck. It's, it's like Hamlet said, to eat or not to eat is the question. 
they were, face, they were forced to face the age-old dilemma, you can't have your cake and eat it too. All right, we'll, uh, we'll keep moving here. Now this, this actually, in case you're doubting, this actually has significant parallels to what Paul was saying in Galatians 5. You can't have your cake and eat it too. And maybe you are, uh, you're like, Justin, I don't remember when John read the part about chocolate cake. That's okay, let me fill in the gaps for you just a bit here. The people at the party, they had a choice. They could either eat the cake or they couldn't eat the cake, but they couldn't both eat the cake and not eat the cake. Either way, right? Here's what Paul's saying. You've got a choice. You can define yourself by your own performance based on your accomplishments or your lack of accomplishments, based on your abilities or your lack of abilities, based on the family you have or the family you don't have, the finances you have or you don't have, or you can define yourself based on Christ's performance, what he's done for you and who he says you are, but you can't have both. These two options are mutually exclusive. You define yourself by your own performance or by Christ's performance. Friends, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You have to make a choice, and there's no middle ground is what Paul would say. He'd say, you can't dabble with a little of Jesus and a little of yourself. You're either all in or you're all out. And of course, the question that that should provoke within us is to say, how would I then know if I'm defining myself by Christ's performance or by my performance. And I've been telling you through the book of Galatians that the first two chapters, Paul defines the gospel, the middle two, he defends the gospel with a lot of Old Testament references, and the last two chapters, he tells you how to live out the gospel. And so here he's beginning to say, here's how you live out the gospel and know if your life is actually defined by Christ's performance or if subtly you're still measuring yourself based on your own performance. Paul would say, if you've moved from law to love, that's how you know. If you've moved from law to love. And that's why the, the sermon title is From Law to Love. And our, our two points this morning are, are pretty simple. The first is this, you're freed from law. Second point, you're freed to love. Freed from law, freed to love. Let's, uh, let's dig in a bit here. Saying freed from law, the first point, Paul will start out by saying this negatively and say, hey, if you are a Christian, if you're in Christ, you've been freed from the law. And he starts kind of negatively saying, but if you try to go back to defining yourself by the law, by your own performance, let me tell you negatively what's going to happen. In the first century, this had to do with the idea of accepting circumcision. That was how they measured themselves on their, their own performance. Have you done this? Have you not? You are truly a Christian if you've done this. You're not truly if you, a, a Christian if you haven't. But th that phrase, we don't need to get tripped up on and wondering why Paul keeps talking about it. Just understand, that's a... a a phrase that in that context meant you're measuring yourself by your own performance, not by Christ's performance, okay? So negatively, Paul's gonna say, if you go back to measuring yourself by your own performance, here's the, the negative things you need to look for. Galatians 5, 2. Look back at your copy of the scriptures with me, and we'll just walk through this. Paul writes, look, I, Paul, say that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. That's not a good thing. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Do you hear him negatively saying, Christian, don't go back to defining yourself by your own performance? Because if you do, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You'll be severed from Christ. You will have fallen from grace. 
These are all really negative things. You'll be obligated to keep the whole law. That is bad news. You don't want to be obligated to have perfect behavior, perfect thoughts, perfect motives, perfect desires, perfect speech. That's an obligation too great for you to bear. In a sense, Paul's saying, here's the acid test for true Christianity. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You can't take Jesus plus anything and still have that eternal life, that home in heaven where you can truly know God. And the second you try to contribute anything yourself, it becomes Jesus plus something equals nothing. Paul's saying, here's the acid test for true Christianity. This is why Tim Keller would comment on this passage and say the following. He would say, you can't add to Christ without subtracting Christ. He's either all their value or he is without value. Can't have your cake and eat it too. There's no middle ground. You're either all on Christ or you're not. So if that's negatively why you should not go back to the law, why you shouldn't define yourself by your own performance, Paul then continues and says, okay, so positively as a Christian, here's how I walk by the Spirit and define myself according to Christ. Look back, Galatians 5, 5 and 6. We read, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What is it we're supposed to do? Through the Spirit, by faith, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. In other words, Paul would say, guys, it is really, really easy to see with your own physical eyes what you're doing in your own physical life and say, I know I did this yesterday, I know I did this Friday, I know I had this thought, this desire. It's easy for me to see what I'm doing and to measure myself by that, to say, I feel pretty good about myself because I got a lot of yard work done and I'm cleaned up and I'm winterized. I got the garage cleaned out. It's really hard to get your eyes off yourself onto Christ, and have that be the primary thing that defines your life. That's hard. So how does Paul say it will happen? Through the Spirit. This is a supernatural work. You don't have the strength to do it yourself. That's why we will sometimes say, hey, you can't white-knuckle this. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You need to cry out to God for his help, for the Spirit, to give you the eyes of faith to see Christ and eagerly hope, wait for the hope of his righteousness and have your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author, perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You need his help for that. That's what Paul's saying positively. This is how you do it. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's just way too easy to think about a good week that I've had of say, hey, I forgave this person, I made a meal for that person, I'm working to believe the best about them even though their actions tell me maybe I shouldn't, and I start to feel good because of a good week, and what you need to remember is it's Christ in you, the hope of glory, not you in you, the hope of glory. And if you had a bad week, and all you can see is how you worried about this, or got angry about that, or you were stingy with that person, how you were critical towards that family, you also need to get your eyes off of yourself and get away from despair and self-loathing and see it's Christ in you, the hope of glory, not you in you, the hope of glory. 
This is why the, the idea of getting your eyes off of yourself, uh, Paul would write about in 2 Corinthians 3, and it says, with an unveiled face, we behold the glory of the Lord. You see it on the screen. 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So I'll pause there. Some of you know that verse is in the Indianapolis Star. I'm glad that the Bible is in the Indianapolis Star, but it's not talking about freedom of the press. Just clarify this, okay? It's not freedom to walk by the Spirit. Continue verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory into another. When your face is unveiled, you see the glory of the Lord, you behold his glory, and that's how you're transformed. Get your eyes off yourself, onto Christ, is what Paul is saying. He's maybe using an educational analogy. It's really easy to have a PhD in your own performance. You know all about it. You can analyze it from every angle, tell, you, tell yourself about the counter-arguments to this or to that, and yet to be a preschooler in Christ's performance. That the ABCs, the simplest things of how he transforms you, is hard to get my eyes onto that. Sometimes, you know, we, I've got little girls, and they're, they're writing their numbers sometimes get backwards, their letters sometimes get backwards, sometimes they're frustrated because they're learning to read and it's not going as quickly as they want. It's hard for them. It's not natural. It's not hard for me to read. I do that a lot. We can have a PhD in our own performance, yet be preschoolers in Christ's performance. And apparently, the Galatians were a little bit, Paul was almost like spiritual yo-yos. They would go down deep into Christ, and they would see what he's done for them, and they would live lives transformed by him. And then, at a moment's notice, and seemingly without cause, that yo-yo would come right back up, and they would be consumed by themselves, and eyes all over themselves. And you down, up, down, up. Does that feel at all familiar to your spiritual life? Man, sometimes I see Christ so clearly, and other times I, I just can't get my eyes off myself. Paul seems to be saying that they've lost track of the subtlety of performance-based living and the urgency of rooting it out. Now, the subtlety comes from his phrase in verse 9. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, performance-based living doesn't come in, you don't, you don't say, you know what, I've decided today I want to define myself on my own performance. Rarely is that how it happens, but it sneaks, sneaks in subtly, like a little bit of leaven. It's, it's almost like weight gain, right? I had a guy tell this to me, uh, and it's always stuck with me. If you gain a half a pound a month, over the course of a year, you gain six pounds. Well, half a pound a month doesn't seem like a big deal, and six pounds in a year probably isn't a huge deal. But in five years, I'll be plus 30 pounds, and in 10 years, I'll be plus 60 pounds. It's subtle. It slowly slides in. And so it means that if I'm focused on this, I gotta weigh myself daily. At the same time, 6 a.m., get that consistent time there so it doesn't get messed up, right? And, and count my calories and exercise and, and work to uh, address this because I know if I don't pay careful attention, there's this subtle gain both of weight in my life and of performance-based living in all of our lives, where we measure ourselves based on here's what I'm doing. Paul says there's a subtlety here, but there's an also an urgency in rooting it out. Where do we see this urgency? Well, verse four, Paul said you would be severed from Christ. That's pretty urgent. Verse 10, Paul speaks to these false teachers who are saying, guys, your performance is actually what matters. And he says, they're going to face the penalty. They're going to face God's judgment for that. God's judgment, that, that's pretty urgent. And then verse 12 is one of the most 
interesting, strange, throw in whatever word you want, phrases in the whole New Testament, Paul says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. That's kind of a high degree of urgency. Right now, don't get creeped out. I'm not going to say anything weird here about that. Sometimes you do read the Bible, what is going on here? Like, is that, did I just read that? It's okay to ask that sometimes. Let me tell you what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, I'm going to push the argument they're making to its logical end to show its absurdity. Right? You can't define yourself even a little bit by your own performance. If you're going to do that, you might as well go the whole way. And you're going to be like, well, no, of course not. That's, that's really stupid. Don't do that. That's what Paul's saying. You've got to recognize that there's no middle ground. You're either defining yourself all by Christ or all by yourself. And let me just push this to its logical end to make the point kind of obvious. You don't want to define yourself based on your own performance. It needs to be all Christ in you. And the reality is very, very few Christians, probably none, would say, I don't need Christ at all. But many subtly would believe we don't need him in certain areas of our life. And oftentimes you find this revealed in the things you pray about. The things you pray about, you think you need his help. The things you don't pray about, you think, I've got this covered. And subtly you feel that sneaking in. And Paul's saying, look, identify it. It's subtle. It's urgent. Root it out. Paul's saying you can't have Jesus plus anything. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Christian, he's freed you from performance-based living and don't go back ever is what Paul's saying. That's the first point. You've been freed from the law. The second point, then, is that you're freed to love. In other words, Paul will say, you're not freed from the law into a passive state Christianity. It's not, hey, there's nothing you need to do here. You're not freed to go pursue whatever you want, either. There's a very specific purpose and goal for Christ coming and freeing you to go do this, to love. So look at this in verses 13 through 15 is where that says, but, but before we even get to those, would you look back at verse six with me? Verse six, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are freed by faith to love. And then verses 13 through 15, we pick up kind of what he had foreshadowed in verse six. Paul writes, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul says this idea of being freed to love is both urgent and important. There's an urgency, you gotta do it now, and it's an importance, you've got to ground yourself in it and stick with it. Now, I come to church, and if I'm a pastor, and I stand up here and say, guys, love is important. Nobody's going to yell at me as a heretic. Most of you, thanks, pastor, that's what you're supposed to say. Love is urgent. You guys agree. I go out into the world, outside of the church, say, love is important. That's right, I believe love is love, science is real. Lenny Kravitz, we've got to let love rule. Maybe you're a sting kind of guy or gal, loves your religion, your church, the holy grail at the end of your search. The goo-goo dolls, the only way we can feel again is to let love in. The whole movie, Princess Bride, made around what? 
true love is. Like, so everybody agrees that love is both urgent and important. So why does Paul drill down if everybody who's a Christian and a Christian, not a Christian, already agrees? Fair question, right? Here's why it is. There's all sorts of things in our life that we recognize as urgent and important, but sometimes, sometimes we get other things going on and we lose sight of that which is most urgent and most important with the white noise of everything else. Here's how I think about this. When I was in college, we traveled on a uh, basketball team doing summer camps all through the summer, all over the nation. And so one summer we were in Tampa, Florida doing a camp and uh, there was a girl that I'd gone to school with that I was interested in. She lived in Tampa, and I thought, oh, this would be cool. We're down there for a camp. Maybe I could find a way that we could go out on a date. So I, I do this work. I, I find a guy's car I can borrow. I find some fun things to do in the Tampa area. And this is before I had a smartphone, so I'm trying to get directions everywhere so I don't get lost. There's all these things. I'm like, this is going to be great. And uh, there was one really urgent and important thing that I forgot to do. No, I did remember to ask her. That's a good guess. <laughs> that would have been bad. No, I forgot to put gas in the car. So it's July 15th in Tampa, Florida. We're on the highway. It's 103 and feels like 203. And we run out of gas in another guy's car. So we get out and walk down the highway. I mean, this asphalt is just like smothering hot. Walk a mile to the gas station off the exit, you know, buy one of those little red gas cans, fill it up, walk back. I'm like, man, I am an idiot. Like, how do you forget to put gas in the car? Obviously, that's urgent. Obviously, it's important. You can't make any progress without it. That's how it is for us to love one another, guys. We know it's urgent. We know it's important. And there's other things swirling in our lives that feel more pressing, that feel more important. And Paul's going to say, you're not getting anywhere if you're not loving one another. So even though you already know it and you don't per se have to be persuaded that love is important, maybe you've lost sight of just how urgent and just how important it is to have gas in your tank and love for one another that is at the heart of the Christian faith. So as, as we think about the importance and the urgency of loving one another, I just want to drill down on this a little bit of what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself as Galatians 5 tells us here. So three subpoints under freed to love. We'll look at the definition of love. We'll look at the practice of love and the cost of love. The definition of love simply stated, you have to define love according to God. Now, that sounds simple, uh, but it's, it's probably not that easy to do. There's all sorts of ways that we start with our own ideas about love. And when God says something different about it, we have this objection to could a, could a loving God really send someone to hell? Well, if I start with my idea of love first, then I'm going to have more difficulty with what is already a difficult question, right? Um, love must be a freedom from what I want to love others. It's, love is not an inward focus, but an outward-focused sort of thing. Uh, Jonathan Lehman would, would, I think, help us in some of his comments here. Look what he has to say about love. He says, we as a culture are no longer interested in the God who is love. Rather, we're interested in our own ideas of love, which become God. God is love is traded for love is God. Instead of going before the creator of the universe and telling, tell us what you are like and how you define love, we start with our own views of love and we deify them. Because it's easy for us to say, oh yes, I see this in the culture out there, and you'd be right in saying that. 
but it's in each of our hearts as well. Aspects where I say, man, am I really defining love and understanding love as God has set his love on me and I am then compelled to go love others? So let me just do a, a quick flyover of the history of the world and love in about 90 seconds here. You start before the creation of the world. What exists? Father, Son, Spirit. Lovingly relating to one another. That's why for God to be love, he must be a trinity. Because love must have an object. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit. That's why the Muslim conception of God cannot be a God of love because Allah had no one to love. So aside from all the debates about is the Trinity, you know, a three-leaf clover with a fourth? No. Is it, you know, water vapor, ice, liquid water? Like, get past all that and recognize the Trinity is huge, that you understand God is love because he is a Trinity. And that love within the Trinity in eternity past when there's nothing else causes him to overflow his love in the creation of the world and of humanity. It's that love that's an object of humanity that sends the Son to willingly give up his life, to be a ransom to save sinners. And then we're told that, that love that first existed within the Trinity and sent the Son is also the, the model, the method of the love that we're to take. Where in Ephesians 5, Paul would say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gives himself for her. So this, this model of love is an outward-focused love, loving others, being sent out not because of what I can get in return, but out of sheer delight in that individual or that person. Michael Reeves has uh, a great little book, Delighting in the Trinity. Uh, I would highly recommend to any of you. It's in our bookstore. Uh, but he, he explains it this way. He says, look, for eternity, the Father so loves the Son that he excites the Son's eternal love in response. Christ so loves the church that he excites our love in response. The husband so loves his wife that he excites her to love him back. She's a cascading down of love from God to us. We are filled by his love and then overflow is a fountain with his love to go out and love others. That's how we understand love, not according to our terms, according to God's terms. The practice of love then, second sub-point there, is that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Right? We start out by saying love starts by seeing people. Have you ever felt like you're in a huge crowd and nobody sees you? Love pauses, it looks out, and it sees people. Over and over again in the Gospels, we'll read of Jesus seeing people. He saw hurting people. He saw ashamed people. He saw guilty people, scared people, apathetic people, irreligious people, but he saw them. I, I'd read about... Um, Thomas Watson, the founder of IBM, he was known to walk through various IBM plants and see somebody doing a good job, stop on the spot, and write them a $5 check. $5 is probably not that big of a deal, but it's a tangible way of saying, I see you, and I care about you, and I want you to know that I see you. Love sees people. Friend, I ask you, when you walk into a room, who do you see? Do you see the people that you think are important? Do you see the people that you think can do something for you? The people who you want to have a good opinion of you? That's not love. That's inward-focused seeing.
verse 6, we're told. Look back at that with me. Galatians 5, 6. Last, last little phrase there. Um, but only faith working through love. And then that's picked up again. Uh, where is that at? Into verse 13. But through love serve one another. Why does it say through love serve one another? Why didn't it just say serve one another? The reality is this. You can serve somebody for your own benefit. And you can see somebody for your own benefit. And Paul says, through love serve, so that you'll understand the point is not that you're getting something back out of this deal. The practice of love is that I see and I serve merely because I love you. Not because of any motivation I have to get something back. Love sees, but love goes beyond seeing. Love moves. And what did Jesus do? He didn't just see us in our pain, suffering, sin, wallowing with no hope in the world. He moved. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He moved into the neighborhood. We just completed our, our James Bible study, James 2, and we're told, hey, what kind of love is it? If you see somebody in need, but you say, brother, be warm and filled, I'll pray for you. That's no kind of love. And what is it that tells us what we love? What moves us, what, it's our calendar and our finances. Those are the two indicators that tell you, here are the things I love enough to be moved by them. This past Thursday uh, afternoon, my dad texted me. And uh, he said, hey, the Colts are playing the Jets tonight, and I found a great deal on tickets. You want to go to the game? Well, I love my dad, and I love going to the Colts game, so naturally I wanted to, but I was on dad duty because uh, Emily had a, a meeting. and said, well, dad, let me see if I can move my calendar around. Let me see if I can find a babysitter. And how much are the tickets? Let me see if, it's, you know, if we've got this much money available for that. And let me rearrange my calendar and my finances because I love my dad and I love going to the Colts games. Love compelled me to move both my calendar and my finances to do what I wanted. That's how it is for all of us. Friend, can I just ask you, do you love Christ enough for it to move your calendar, move your alarm clock up to get up and spend time with him in the morning? Do you love him enough to recognize I am burning myself out at this breakneck speed and I probably need to pass on some overtime opportunities and pass up some money because this killer work schedule is actually hurting my relationship with Christ? Has love for Christ moved your, your calendar? Has it moved your finances? What about his body? Do you love the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church? Has that moved your calendar? Obviously, you're here this morning, so in some sense it has, or maybe you're watching online, but if someone were to look at that, would, would by your calendar, they say, clearly, you love the body of Christ. If they looked at your finances, would they say, clearly, you love the body of Christ. Friend, do you love the advance of the gospel of Christ? If somebody looked at your calendar, would they say, man, I see the time that you have dedicated to praying for unreached people groups who have not heard the name of Christ, and I see you desperately begging God to take the gospel to them? Or would they say, no, you seem more concerned about Big Ten sports than the advance of the gospel among the nations? And if they looked at your, your finances, would they say the same thing about your love for the advance of the gospel? Love moves. If it doesn't move you, it's not really love. It's lip service. And our calendars and our finances reveal these things. Love sees, love moves, 
But love also stays. That's part of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, that I look inward at myself. Love stays. It sticks with people. I said, man, I can be the first person to tell you that I change a whole lot slower than I wish I would change. It takes me a long time. Not only do I have a big head, I have a thick head. Maybe you can relate to that, spiritually if not physically. But what what does Christ say in Philippians 1? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to stick with you. You're going to stick with you. You need to stick with others as well. Love compels you to, to see, to move, and also to stay. And this is what the point of verse 15, if you look back at the passage, says at the very end. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Because inevitably, inevitably, I'm going to do something stupid. I'm going to sin against you. And you're going to sin against somebody. And one of two things happens. Either we do something that we shouldn't and we run away out of guilt and shame and say, I can't deal with that here. I got to go somewhere else. Nope, love compels you to stay. Or somebody will do something to you and out of frustration and anger towards them, you want to leave. No, love compels you to stay in both scenarios and say, Here's how Ray Ortland would say. He'd say, the, the path to transformation, to change, is three things. Gospel plus safety plus time. The gospel is the only hope of transformation in the world. But it requires a safe place where I can confess my sins to one another. Where I can take what's in the dark, bring it into the light. If I leave it in the dark, it will fester, it will grow, and it will overtake me. I need the, the transforming power of the gospel in a community of safety where I can confess my sins and have brothers and sisters walk alongside me and help me change. And I need time and people to stick with me because I change slowly and I know that all of you change slowly because we're all humans. Love sees, love moves, love stays. That's the practice of love. If you've been tracking with me at all here and sticking with me, you're beginning to think, this love is going to cost me something. I've been freed to love, but it's going to cost me time. It's going to cost me relational equity. It might cost me money. It might cost me this thing or that thing. Am I really interested in it? Maybe better just to pass, let somebody else take up that cause and I'll invest myself somewhere else. So let's consider the cost of love together, lest we jump into something with both feet without counting the cost, get halfway in and say, you know what, it's really not worth it. The cost of love. What does love do? Jesus would tell us it's laying down your life for your friends. This is worth looking at. I hope you grab your Bibles. Flip over to John 15. If you got the Pew Bible, it's page 902. I want you to see this. Pew Bible, page 902. John 15. Look at verses 12 through 14 with me. This is the cost of love made explicitly clear by Jesus. He says this. John 15, 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And lest there be any confusion, he goes on to define that love in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then verse 14, he further clarifies, you are my friends if you do what I command you. 
If you lay down your life, that's the measure of love. I'm commanding you, lay down your life for me, Jesus. Not Justin, not your pastor, not your Sunday school class, not your small group, not your neighbor. Yes, all of those, but it's laying down your life for Christ first, which is manifested by loving all those other people. This is hard. I lay down my life. I die to myself. This is not a, it's not a fun message to think about. Man, what's it going to feel like for me to die to myself? You might say it's a bit of a dreary message. That I tell you, you need to die to yourself today. But it's the only way to true joy. See, I could tell my kids, hey, cotton candy's really good for you. You can have as much as you want. Say, yes, I get what I want. I have my stuff. And they eat, eat, eat and get really sick. Say, Justin, that was not good fathering from you. You should have told them otherwise. You should have told them to eat their beef stew. And I don't want meat, Dad. I don't want vegetables. I don't want, that doesn't sound nearly as good as cotton candy. But it's the only way to be sustained and be carried along in a winter day. Don't you love that nice winter chili stew soup? Oh, that's starting to sound good. It's almost lunchtime. (laughs) See, what sounds good at the outset of I get what I want isn't always good. And it's important that we stop, we consider the cost, and I say, here's what this will cost me, And what it will cost me, although painful, is the only path to true joy. It means that I die to sleeping in because it's better that I spend time with Jesus. It means that I die to Sunday at the lake because it's better that I spend time with God's people. It means that I die to the material things that I can technically afford because it's better to invest in God's kingdom. It means I die to coming to church as a consumer because it's better that I come to church and serve the body of Christ. It means it's better that I die to protecting all of my weeknights as me time because it's better that I go out and serve widows. It means that I die to the idea of being more respectable at work because it's better that I boldly proclaim Christ and tell people who he is and that he's coming back. Friends, it's, it means that I die to the busyness of the holiday season because it's better that I leave a little bit of margin so I can adopt a family as part of the community Christmas project. There's all these things that are good things. They're not bad things. But we must die to ourselves because there is something better. You start to really think through boots on the ground. What's that look like? And you think, man, Justin, I I hear what you're saying, but is there any other way to do this? Because that's going to cost me a lot. You're right, it is. I'm not going to sugarcoat it here. You wouldn't want me to be your pastor if I would. And let me just remind you of the scriptures. Well, just a few months ago, we read Galatians 2. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Matthew 16, we were in even a few months before that. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Luke 17, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. There's no other way. Friends, another way of saying this is there's something worse than losing your life. Wasting it. And don't waste your life pursuing the things you want because they sound good right now. Give yourself 
to the work of the gospel, to the mission of the church, and lay your life down for that. You start to think about what's that action step this afternoon that I actually lay down my life and I don't know if I want to take that step or not, then you fix your eyes on Jesus. Because you can only lay down your life when you've got your eyes on his life. This is how you're freed from the law and freed to love. You fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He didn't deny how painful it would be, how much shame he would feel, the scorn he would receive. He just said, I see there's joy in dying to myself because there's something better than losing my life or something worse than losing my life. It would be wasting it. So we're gonna go to communion here in a minute. And I just want you to consider, where do I need to die to myself today? I've been freed to love. Where am I not loving as I've been freed to love? And as you begin to ponder the fact that you probably don't have the strength to do that, that's what Satan's going to tell you, right? You're going to be empty. You're going to be exhausted. You can't do it. You can tell him, Satan, you're right. I will be empty. I will be exhausted. But the good news is I'm not the source of the strength that Jesus is. So you look to him, you remember his sacrifice, and draw from the strength of the gospel to live the life of love that you've been freed to. Let's pray. Jesus, you came to free us from ourselves, from enslavement to our own performance. You've come to free us to love others with the radical love that you first showed to us. I pray for, I pray for Justin first and for all of our church next, God, that you would help us by your grace, give us the strength to fix our eyes on you, to walk in obedience, to be freed to love as you've called us to love. We pray in Jesus' name.